All right, good morning. We are going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, so I invite you to turn to that Gospel in your Bibles. And if you didn't bring one this morning, we do provide some of the Scripture references on the screen, but there's also blue, uh, blue Bibles lying around that you could find on the floor you could pick up and utilize. And we are going to be in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, and our text will be verses 1 through 12. Last time we covered the end of chapter 1, and by last time I mean about a month ago, so it's always good to do a little refresher on what preceded this section. We covered the end of chapter 1, we looked at verses 35 to 51, in which we read of the first disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. These men heard the testimony concerning Jesus. It started with the testimony of John the Baptist, and then it was the testimony of those who first followed him to others. And they believed that he was the Messiah, the one for whom John the Baptist had been preparing the way. And they began to follow after him. Now these men, along with some others would later be called by Jesus to full-time discipleship and also be commissioned as his apostles. But the account we looked at last time was of their first experiences being in the personal presence of Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. And that section closed with Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel. Jesus had demonstrated supernatural knowledge in something he said to Nathanael, which led Nathanael to believe in him. Nathanael called Jesus the Son of God and the King of Israel, both of which were messianic titles, titles used in Scripture referring to the promised Messiah. So we see Nathanael professing faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus then assured Nathanael that he would see even greater things. And just two days later, in the town of Cana in Galilee, which happened to be Nathanael's hometown, Nathanael, along with the other disciples, witnessed something greater than a display of supernatural knowledge. They witnessed Jesus display supernatural power. We're going to read of that, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, so two days later, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 
gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days This was the first miraculous sign that the Lord performed, and thus it was his first manifestation of his glory as the Son of God. Now, we read that all this took place at a wedding celebration in the town of Cana in Galilee, which was not far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Remember, small town, small little podunk town, right? Canna's another small town, neighboring town. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus' mother, Mary, was there, and that Jesus and his disciples had been invited to attend as well. In addition to that, Mary had some level of involvement in assisting with the hospitality for the guests, which seems to indicate that she was either a close friend or a relative of the bridegroom's family. Wedding celebrations were hosted back then at the home of the bridegroom or of the bridegroom's father. And it was the responsibility of the bridegroom and his family to provide food and drink for all of the invited guests throughout the entire celebration, which, by the way, could last an entire week. A failure, a failure to meet this responsibility would not just be a major embarrassment, it could also have legal repercussions. A lawsuit could be brought by the bride's family against the bridegroom and his family for dishonoring them through their negligence. In addition to this, Such a failure in hospitality for wedding guests would bring lifelong shame upon the bridegroom and his family. This was a serious situation that we read of in this section. Now we see in verse 3, what happened? The bridegroom's family ran into this very problem because the wine ran out in the middle of the wedding celebration. And Mary brought this concern directly to Jesus. And John recounts for us their interaction. So in verses 
3 and 4, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now John says in verse 11 that the miracle Jesus performed on this occasion was the first of his signs. That means that Jesus had not performed any miracles before this point. He had lived a quiet and normal life in relative obscurity. He wasn't walking around like a little miracle maker boy. Right? He, he, he lived a quiet, normal life in relative obscurity. He was raised by godly Jewish parents. He had younger brothers and sisters. And when he entered into adulthood, he took on the trade of carpentry after his earthly father, Joseph. It appears that Joseph was perhaps no longer alive by the time of these events depicted in John's gospel, which would mean that Jesus, as the oldest son, would have been fulfilling his responsibility of providing for his mother, who was a widow. And he was 30 years old at this point. For his whole life, he had not just been a faithful son. He had been a perfect son. Hard to wrap your mind around that. We just talked about, Aaron just mentioned about parenting, thinking about your children. If you actually had a perfect child, what would that look like? It only makes you wonder. He had been a perfect son, and certainly Mary would have rejoiced in and benefited greatly from that. But being sinless, and perfect in righteousness, she would have rejoiced in and benefited greatly from her son's love and wisdom and righteous example. However, in her interaction with Jesus at the wedding celebration, there's, there's something more than just a mother seeking the aid of her dependable, insightful, and godly son. Mary knew who her son truly was. She would not have forgotten the angel Gabriel (laughs) appearing to her when she was just a young betrothed virgin and delivering to her the following heavenly message, which we read of in Luke's gospel. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary knew her son was the long-awaited Messiah. However, she was not given any details as to when he would be revealed to Israel as the Savior King and usher in all that God had promised for his people. She was simply called 
to be his mother. The rest was in God's hands. We see in Luke's gospel that when Jesus was 12, Mary and Joseph were just trying their best to take care of him and to raise him well. However, at the time of the events at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus was well into adulthood, about 30 years of age. And because of his age alone, it seems reasonable to think that Mary at this point would have been anticipating more and more the manifestation of her son as Israel's Messiah. I mean, he's 30 now. He's about 30. can't be much longer. Waiting on the Lord, but it's probably going to be really soon. However, there was more that had just recently taken place and perhaps would have led her to believe that the time had come. John the Baptist... The first prophet in over 400 years had risen up in Israel, and he was calling the people to repent and to prepare the way of the Lord. Mary must have known that Jesus had gone out to be baptized by John, and it was about a month and a half later that she saw him again. He returned just in time to attend this wedding celebration with his family. And what did she observe at this point? Jesus had returned with several disciples, men who had heard testimony that he was the Messiah and were now following him. What did this mean? Well, it meant that his ministry had begun, and he was starting to fulfill his divine purpose as Israel's promised Messiah. The time of the quiet, normal life and obscurity had ended. And the next chapter had opened. Because of this, Mary may have been thinking that he would manifest himself to Israel any day now. And with this expectation came the hope that he would restore the kingdom to Israel and reign in righteousness forever. And thus bring the abundant blessing of God upon the world and first and foremost upon his people, Israel. The scriptures depicted a future age of spiritual and material blessing for the people of Israel, which would come about after the Messiah restored them to a right relationship with God and established his kingdom upon the earth. The prophet Joel said, And in that day, The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. They lived in a region that's kind of similar to Southern California, arid, so flowing with water, all those stream beds. The prophet Amos said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. So there's so much abundance, in other words, that there's an overlap in the planting and harvesting seasons. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. And finally, 
the prophet Isaiah said, On this mountain, referring to Jerusalem, Zion, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Clearly, the prophet spoke of many divine blessings that would be poured out during the age of Messiah's kingdom. One blessing in particular that is mentioned repeatedly is that there will be a continual and abundant supply of wine for God's people to enjoy. Now, it is likely that Mary had these blessings in mind. And with the perception that her son had in some way begun to initiate his messianic ministry, she went straight to him when she learned that the bridegroom and his family had run out of wine for their guests. She was seeking his help. What was she implying by her statement to him? Just want to let you know that it ran out. It's unfortunate, just so you know. I mean, what's going on here? Well, was she requesting that he perform a miracle? That's unlikely, since Jesus had not yet at this point performed any miracles. You know, again, not growing up, just doing little miracles. It's like, hey, could you do one of those miracles again? Yeah, they ran out of wine. It's not that. It'd be unlikely. He hadn't performed any yet. And since he ended up doing a miracle in this past, we see what he does. Since he ended up doing a miracle after declining her implied request, uh, it indicates that her request was for something else. So there's something that he declined, but then he turns around and does a miracle. So it doesn't seem that she is asking for a miracle, but you can see what she might have in mind knowing who her son was, the Messiah. Kingdom's probably going to get established any day now, and we know what the prophet said about the blessings in this kingdom, and man, wouldn't it be a great time considering the circumstances right now? So it's more likely that when Mary said to Jesus, they have no wine, She was implying that now would be a great time for him to manifest himself to Israel as the Messiah and usher in the age of divine blessing for his people. I would say that this is quite a mom moment for Mary. It's like, they have no wine. You know the potential, you know your son, you know who he is, you know what he's capable of. It's like, son, that would be a great time. (laughs) And I just want you to remember, you know, we can't forget that to humanize everyone we're reading of in Scripture. Mary was a mom, and Jesus, though he was the Son of God, miraculously conceived, he grew up and experienced life as a son. This was his mother. 
I had my mom visit this past week, so this is kind of a, you know, relevant experience for me. I can relate to this. Mom with her adult son. It was a good visit. And I mean that. It was a great visit. <laughs> but we see this, this moment between her and her son. So she's thinking, now would be a great time, right? You can see how she might be thinking that. Hey, the potential of a lawsuit and lifelong shame for the bridegroom and his family, well, that would certainly disappear if the Messiah was revealed to all and the time of Israel's restoration had come. There certainly also would be no lack of wine then. So Mary had kingdom blessings and the timeliness of Jesus' messianic ministry in mind when she informed him of the problem. But what did he say to her? First he said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? By addressing her in this way, Jesus was not being harsh towards his mother. Rather, he was indicating to her that their relationship had changed. One commentator says that Jesus politely but firmly informed her that what they had in common in their relationship was no longer to be what it had been while he was growing up in Nazareth. His public ministry had begun, and earthly relationships would not determine his actions. Mary was to relate to him no longer as her son, but as her Messiah. Jesus then said to Mary, My hour has not yet come. Throughout John's gospel, the hour of Jesus refers to his death, the time of his death, that is, his voluntary death upon the cross by which he would atone for the sins of his people. Jesus had first come into the world for this purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, his kingdom and the abundance of blessing therein would only come when? After the cross. What Mary was hoping for was not in accordance with God's plan and timing. Now, she did not necessarily understand that Jesus was referring specifically to the hour of his atoning sacrifice, but she did understand that he was telling her that it was not yet time, it was not yet the time for what she was hoping for. However, she was nonetheless confident that he would do something. She knew that her son was good and righteous and wise and compassionate and that he was not indifferent to the situation that she had presented to him. Again, think about the seriousness of the situation. She knew that he wasn't indifferent to that. There was nothing she or anyone else could do to fix the situation. What are you going to do? It's out. It's gone. So what did she do? She resolved to leave the matter to Jesus, trusting that he knew and would do what was best. She left it in his hands, left it to him. 
That is why John says in verse 5 that at this point, she said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. John then provides his readers with the following detail in order to set the stage for what Jesus does next. In verse 6, we read, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot. This was a large quantity of water, over 100 gallons. However, it was not there for the wedding guests to drink. It was there for them to perform the Jewish rites of purification. What were these rites of purification? There's a passage in Mark's gospel that provides us with some helpful cultural context and additional details concerning these purification rites. We read in Mark chapter 7, Mark's gospel. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his, Jesus, disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, the six large stone water jars at the wedding celebration were not for the observance of the law of God, that is, the law of Moses, the law, God's law given to his people, that certainly he wanted them to obey. Those jars were not for the observance of the law of God, but for the observance of the tradition of the elders. As taught and upheld by the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel who had the widest influence among the people. Therefore, the jars signified the superficial spirituality and empty ritualism and legalism that had set in among the people of Israel. Right there in the midst of a wedding celebration where people were rejoicing in the goodness of God's institution of marriage were those big stone water jars imposing upon the people the empty religious traditions of men, which were neither pleasing to God nor of any spiritual benefit to his people. I don't think it would be unreasonable to say that Jesus might have been a little annoyed at the presence of those stone water jars. Wedding celebration, look at that. Empty ritualism, legalism. 
traditions of men. So what did Jesus do? What did he do? He chose to use those six stone water jars as vehicles for his first miraculous sign by which he would manifest his glory as the Christ, the Son of God. He chose to give those six stone water jars a purpose that would actually be of some real benefit to the wedding guests. He chose to graciously alleviate the problem of the wine running out, and those six stone jars were about to go from being symbols of empty ritualism to being symbols of abundant joy, blessing, burden, will become a blessing. Verses 7 and 8 we read, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, whatever amount had been used up at this point for the ritualistic washings was replenished. And the jars were now completely full. Verse 8, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Uh, The master of the feast was the person who oversaw the distribution of the food and wine during the feast. Pretty important role. It was a position of honor. And before a particular dish or batch of wine was served, they had to be tasted and approved by him. Quality control. It's kind of like that kitchen expediter. Send this back. Send this out. This is good. Quality control. Overseeing the hospitality in the dining room. Now the servants had filled those stone jars full of water. And then, per Jesus' instructions, they, they drew some of that water out and began taking it to the master of the feast. Nothing's happened yet. But then in verse 9, we read the following. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Stop! They drew out water, they took it to him, and then it just says, he tasted the water, became wine. There's your miracle. Subtle, discreet. At some point, after the water was drawn, and before it was presented to the master of the feast, Jesus turned it all into excellent wine. In an instant... What once had been water was now a well-aged, fine wine, which we learn based upon the reaction of the master of the feast. Now, John makes the point in verse 9 that the master of the feast was unaware that he was about to taste miracle wine. He was just fulfilling his responsibility of tasting a sample of the next batch of wine before proving it to be served to the guests which means he probably at that point might not have been aware that the wine was out, was basically out. And we read in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. You got this from where? Stonewater, the, the purification rites, water jars? Well, he didn't know that. Servants knew where they got it. It says after he tasted it, he then called the, he called the bridegroom. Now, it appears that at this point, no one 
was yet aware that Jesus had miraculously turned the water into wine. John informs us that the water that had been taken to the master of the feast had become wine by the time he tasted it. But at the time, he, along with the other disciples who were there, did not know exactly what Jesus had done until they heard what the master of the feast said to the bridegroom. Right? So, if you, again, if you picture yourself being the disciples, you know what he told them. You know the situation. You know what he told them. They draw some water out. They're going to the master of the feast. He tastes it. And then all of a sudden, he's calling the bridegroom over. And what does he say? So they don't, they don't know yet. Then they hear him say this. Verse 9, leading into 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. You kind of messed up. <laughs> right? He has no idea, right? And he's just, he's testifying to the quality of what he tasted. And because it was so great, he's like, you made a mistake. It's okay. We'll, we'll get through this. I mean, it's not as bad as like you running out of wine or something right? (laughs) So you see how much of a neutral and objective party the master of the feast was, right? He had no idea where the sample drink had come from. He had no idea that it was formerly water that had been turned into wine. There was nothing to sway him from making an objective assessment regarding the quality of the wine. His only expectation was that it was going to be a lesser quality wine, which is uh, lesser quality than the last batch that he had sampled and approved since it was customary to serve the best stuff first and the lower quality stuff later. However, when he tasted it, he believed that the bridegroom messed up because it was far better than what had already been served. And Jesus' disciples had been listening and watching this whole time, and when they heard the master of the feast say to the bridegroom, you've kept the good wine until now, well, they realized what Jesus had done. And their perception of him was taken to a whole new level. John says in verse 11, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You know, Jesus, as we had mentioned, he had told Nathaniel that he would see greater things than a display of supernatural knowledge. And just a couple days later at this wedding, he truly did, as did John and Andrew and Peter and Philip, having witnessed this first sign of the Lord's, their faith in him deepened. They already believed the testimony concerning him. And again, their understanding of what that meant went to a certain extent, but then now they saw this sign, and they believed in him. Their faith was now deepened, strengthened. They perceived him on a whole other level. By the grace of God, they had begun following Jesus in faith. And by the grace of God, as they spent more time with him, their faith in him would continue to increase and be strengthened. They would witness more signs. And they would, as he did these signs, they would also hear his divine teaching, which he had promised that they would hear. 
One commentator says this, the signs are not merely acts of power and might. They unveil that God is at work in Jesus and indeed is present in him. Thus, John remarks that through this sign, Jesus reveals his glory. This is an essential affirmation for John, and it moves to the center of what he affirms about Jesus. Jesus is not merely a man. He is more. He conveys the presence of God in the world. And since he radiates the presence of God, he appropriately shows forth God's glory. Now, as amazing as this first sign was, Jesus had done it very discreetly. John doesn't mention the reaction of Mary or of the servants. It's possible that only the disciples fully understood what had taken place, though perhaps Mary likely did as well. But John only tells us what impact this sign had on him and the other disciples. Verse 12 then serves as a transition to the next series of events in John's gospel account. In verse 12 we read, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. It's after this that Jesus will go to Jerusalem and begin to confront and shake up the unrighteous religious establishment in Israel. But we will read of that next time. But as for this sign, it is shown to us the supernatural power of our Lord, his power. As the creator, John said all things were made through him. He'd come into his creation. It is also shown to us his compassion and kindness. Kindness. He was merciful. He showed kindness, a great kindness to the bridegroom, and really to the wedding guests, pretty much everyone involved, and even a kindness to his mother, knowing the concern she had. It has also provided us with a glimpse of the bountiful blessings that will be enjoyed in his coming kingdom. And again, really all the signs that John's going to tell us about in his gospel, they all kind of achieve this. They, they signify or, or point to the truth concerning who he truly is, his true nature as the divine son of God, and they also signify the, the hope of the coming blessings of his coming kingdom. They're all going to point to that. This sign was written down in John's gospel, because he says it at the end of his gospel, the purpose of him conveying, the recounting these signs that he witnessed. This sign was written down in Holy Scripture so that, what does he say in his gospel? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. If, if you have not been born again, if you have not become a true disciple of Jesus, and again, coming to church or participating in church activity or, or doing things that are, generally speaking, Christian, trying to live a Christian life by itself, 
does not mean that you truly have been born again. It could just be another form of ritualism and empty, like that ceremonial washing, as significant as that. Void of anything that's truly pleasing to God because you are still not right with him. If you haven't been born again and become a true disciple of Jesus, may today be the day of your salvation. This is written for you that you might believe. And just as the Lord turned the water into wine, well, may he pour his spirit out upon you and grant you a new heart and saving faith so that you might be utterly transformed and become a child of God. Your performance isn't what matters to God. A new creation is what is needed. And that's God's work that he can do in you. You're called to believe on Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ. And by believing on him, you indeed will have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for allowing us to, by hearing it, by reading it, to, in a way, be able to go back in time and to participate in, in experiencing and witnessing these amazing events in which your son manifested his glory and showed people who he truly was, his true nature as the divine son of God, as the Christ, as the one who is indeed fully God and fully man, as the one who is the only mediator between God and men. And we pray that for anyone in here who is not yet reconciled to you, that they might be, that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, and that by believing they may truly have life in his name. May you grant them faith, may you grant them a new heart and a new spirit so that they might have spiritual life, that they might be reconciled to you be forgiven of their sins and have the hope of glory in the everlasting kingdom of your Son. And for those of us who are in Christ, Father, we pray that we would continue to be faithful witnesses to the truth concerning him and that we would not take our eyes off of him and of, of the glory that is to come for us, that that would be a motivator for us to live in the here and now in this fallen, broken world that is under the curse of sin that we might shine as stars in a dark place, that we might be faithful witnesses of your glorious Son, and that we might not despair under the trials and tribulations of this life, but know that it is fleeting, it is momentary, but the joy and the kingdom that you have in store for us is eternal, is forever. Give us strength, increase our faith continually, Help us to honor you. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You alone are worthy. You are the supreme one, the preeminent one, the excellent one. All things have been made for you. All things are made through you, and all things belong to you. We surrender ourselves to you, our lives. Reveal any, any sinful way that is in us that we might repent of it and offer our, our very lives to you as a holy sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen.